Hello and welcome back to The Shortest Path. This week we welcome Dr Raj Joshi, an expedition leader, medical doctor and co-founder of the Adventure Boutique. He's uniquely experienced in leadership, survival and endurance across multiple terrains. So think the desert, jungle, polar and so on. Now, Dr. Raj is one of the select few individuals in the world that has successfully climbed unguided the highest mountain on every continent. In this episode, expect to learn the importance of pushing beyond comfort zones in order to unlock your potential, how experiencing new cultures and environments can lead to personal growth, the strategies for overcoming your fears and self-doubt in order to achieve your goals, how to balance multiple passions and career paths, the significance of self-belief, being present and how to handle challenges, especially in unexpected situations. And lastly, insights into the psychology behind successful expeditions and team dynamics. So, without further ado, let's get to the show. I always wanted to know this question. Um, How many countries have you visited so far? Good question. Yeah. I do get asked this. I'm not totally sure, to be honest. Really? Yeah, hazarding a guess, I'd say maybe 80, 90 countries, but um, I'm not totally sure. Do you? Is it because you've just been to that many that you just forgotten? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't kept a, an accurate diary, I suppose. And I've, I've sort of thought about countries and got a rough gauge about how many I've been to. Some of them I've been multiple times i mean some countries i've probably been like over 40 times uh so i traveled a lot um and been to a fair few countries and been very lucky to have been to every continent so i've had great pleasure in not only seeing different environments but meeting so many incredible people because to me it's actually what makes a country special are the the people Mm, i totally agree i totally agree like i think my number count is 49 the reason why I know that is because me and my wife were in a competition. So I like to say I inspired her to start her traveling. She's on 53 or 54 now. Um, but there's so much of the world to see. And uh, like you said, when you go there and come back, you have an appreciation of, say, the cultures, the people, the food. That's number one for me. Um, what would you say is your favorite country that you visit to? Difficult, again, to say. Okay. Reason being, I try to see the beauty in every country and what makes it special. And as you know, there's always going to be good points and not so good points in every country and every society. But I'll try to appreciate what that country and the people are about. I could give different ones for different reasons. I mean, one of my favorites where I've been uh, quite a lot of times is Nepal. Mm. Uh, reason being is because I have I do a bit of climbing and over there has some of the biggest, most awe-inspiring mountains in the world. Yeah. I love the culture as well. The Nepali culture is fantastic. People are beautiful. You may have heard of the, the famous Sherpas, mm-hmm. a, a race of people over there who are renowned for their mountaineering prowess. So I've got a lot of good local friends over there that I've known for years and worked with over the years. So I, I love Nepal for the people, the culture, the uh, terrain. And Is that the one you've been to 40 times already? Yeah, yeah. They say at least 40 times I've been over the years. Led multiple expeditions over there whether they've been some climbs or some treks so much to do it's uh it's an adventure playground so you mentioned that you do mountaineering as well as say the adventure traveling are they did they coincide together or did one 
medium before the other kind of the mountaineering probably started first um i fell in with a group of climbers did my own expeditions and i say i learned a lot from some of the other climbers who were older and more experienced than myself and i remember one of them works and still works as i consider probably one of the world's top guides and he recommended me to one of the companies he worked for and i i did a trip and that went well thankfully and i got great feedback from the group and then i was asked to work again did some more trips and then you start developing a bit of reputation in yeah. that field and then i started guiding for other companies so i, I worked uh, as an exhibition leader probably the mountaineering side started first which gave me that expertise mm -hmm. and then i was actually able to take over then actually lead other people on some of these trips well wow. so you've had that passion for a long time i'd say so yeah pretty much since i've been in nappies yeah honestly i mean yes i think whether it was also part of me but i think my parents played a large part because we used to go on holidays around the uk to explore some of the the most wonderful places like to me the uk is one of the most beautiful countries in the world and great for expeditions it may not have big mountains such as the himalaya but still has some fantastic places and we used to go camping so my parents were were adventurous they used to take us camping with other families uh, every year and i grew up with the other children those families where we went exploring the mountains uh the hills the forests so some of my place favorite place in the world when actually people ask me um also about countries would be uk i'm particularly member uh, north wales going there quite a lot and exploring the mountains the beautiful forests there uh, uh, scotland for instance so so yeah i think a lot of it stemmed from my early upbringing which i think was quite important developing from early age and appreciating the outdoor environment which may be not as many people get that opportunity these days and it, it sort of came in my in my blood the outdoor environment and i developed a natural affinity with with our environment and nature mm -hmm. where i think i understand that environment more than i do the urban environment the cities i know the risk can be greater in the outdoors but then now i use my expertise to mitigate those risks to to help others and lead others to achieve their ambition but that's amazing did you ever uh, imagine yourself say adventuring full-time yes and no i mean again since i was a child i sort of dreamt of these sort of things and i looked at people thinking oh, it's incredible what they're doing and wouldn't it be amazing to do that but how can i ever do that so but then i always had that thing at the back of my mind maybe one day or maybe i'd, I'd love to do that and i suppose chipped away with um a bit of hard work you know maybe i've got a little bit of aptitude as well for it and and thankfully achieved to where i am now that's correct so whilst you were like in training or in practice were you doing like your expedition more later on but i was always in the mountains again whether it was with holidays i remember even at university um i i led a group uh of friends to raise money for um, uh, a homeless charity at the time to do the National Three Peaks. And I think I might have, I just got a few friends together 
we went and did it um, maybe a couple of times while I was at university. So I was always in the outdoors in, in some way. And it was, I suppose, later on when I had a bit of money, um, when I started earning, I was able to go further afield. And that's when I, I started climbing more and then started doing my own expeditions. So I'd say after I qualified the medical career and then the outdoor career, started off almost hand in hand like the adult career wasn't far behind the medical career i see yeah and then i i in a way started um doing dual jobs and taking time off uh, from each to do both because both are important to me yeah okay so that was that's that was my next question like did it ever feel that you were say sacrificing how much time you could spend in your medical especially if you spent so many years training up to be a doctor and then say, you know what, I can do this adventure in, which technically you don't even need to be a doctor, but I guess it can give you an unfair advantage compared to some of the other expedition leaders. Um, was that kind of your thinking? Uh, pretty much so. I, I felt with medicine, I can always do that for the rest of my life. Eventually you can to some degree, but I knew the expeditions I was doing can take its toll on the body. And you've also got to have some physicality about you to be able to do more extreme challenges so i thought let's do both if you got skills in in both fields why not um use them i think it's sometimes a criminal if people waste their talents yeah and also i find sometimes society people like labeling others or giving a label and it's like that person only does this or can only do that and haven't got any other capabilities so i, I broke the mold in in some way by doing two very different roles and I remember getting some advice, I think at the time in my medical career earlier on that not to to do the other job because it may show that you're not committed to the cause, the medical cause, and you might find it difficult to get other jobs, medical jobs, when you came back out of the expeditionary environment. And I remember taking time off to do both and then coming back and having interviews for the medical jobs and being asked as well actually what do I get from this and I think actually if you could justify what you do and how that benefits you as a both as a human being and also how it can improve you as a as a doctor then it could be a powerful thing and and actually I didn't really have um, um, the problems really getting the jobs I wanted when I came back following the interviews it, if anything it hopefully added to to who I am you remember the answer that you gave to that question um long time ago but i remember some some things some of it was actually about appreciation uh to me it gives you where i've been to and seeing how other people live how other cults and societies are gives you appreciation of life and what what you have i mean i mean i think i actually said in one interview um that i remember on some of the places i go to some of the people i work with the local people are really important to to help with these expeditions some of them probably would literally give their right arm to be in the position I or others have in the in the UK. And and that sort of gave me that sense of appre appreciation. I think I said something along those lines, actually interview, and I think I still got, got the job. Um, but, but that was quite powerful. And then it could also be useful for other matters like your personal admin. You know, as a mountaineer, you've got to be up to scratch with your personal admin, making sure everything's sorted, whether it's that attention to detail, making sure your kit and equipment is, is right, your timings are, are right as well, because you might need to leave at a certain time. 
uh, for reasons, whether it's you've got to go when it's a bit colder, so the crevasse danger is less, avalanche danger is less, and you've got to reach a certain point by this time. So you've got to be quite critical with your timings. You can't be late and things. So again, I think that then gets cross-transferable to other environments or occupations and it, it stays with you. I can imagine. It's interesting actually because as you were saying that, it reminded me of, I think the Science Doctors Frontiers. And my French is terrible, but it's there. Oh, Medicine Sans Frontiers. Because um, essentially they are doctors in the field and they essentially rescue people. Um, did you ever think of that as an avenue? I I have um, done some similar sort of work. I mean, in the sense that I, I was part of um, an organisation called UK Med, which was part of the medical response, UK's medical response to international disasters. And I... I uh, have been involved in a couple of things. I've been abroad to, in conjunction with the World Health Organization to train um, doctors from other nationalities for things like um, major incidents, how they form medically when something big kicks off, such as an earthquake. And actually, on one of the expeditions I was in, involved in the earthquake in Nepal in 2015, which killed almost, I think, 10,000 people, I think injured over 20,000 and left millions homeless. And I was on a, a Mount Everest expedition at the time, which um, which was stopped. And then I, I stayed on to help out with um, disaster relief operations. But I remember at the time as well, I was contacted, I think, by um, UK Medical Organization. Can, can I be one of the first people to go out there? And I'm thinking, I'm already here. Um, and it also, when you're on expeditions, you could be in some remote environment with it, with little healthcare and uh, you could be also working in in some aspects to to help or identify what um what medical areas could be tackled now or need to be improved upon mm-hmm. and then how was that with the nepal earthquake because you were midway of an expedition so presumably you had the whole group of people you charge of so did you just go to where they needed help or so at the time, I had a client I was guiding up just to Everest Base Camp, but I had another expedition I was joining afterwards. For a, it was a proper Mount Everest expedition, uh, who I was going to support them from, from the base camp. So I had an agreement with the Everest expedition that I can take my clients up first of all, and then bring them back down, and I'll go back up to base camp to to join the the other team. So that I just finished my clients, and thankfully I, I took them down. I had just flown off, and I was actually on my way back to um, to base camp to join the team. And I got hit as I was going up, probably a couple of days away from base camp. Um, so at the time, I um, there were other people there who were naturally quite scared about what was going on. Um, I remember um, linking up with some people as well and um, staying with them and also keep trying to keep an eye sometimes on people. But thankfully, I didn't have a... A group as such which I'd I was leading which got hit I was sort of in between groups then the Everest team I headed up because I lost communication with them so I needed to see what was happening and as I was arriving pretty much just before base camp at the last um the last sort of uh village in a way then um my team were coming down and I met with up with them and then we extracted back to to Kathmandu eventually and then that's when I stayed over and got involved actually with um some of the 
disaster relief operations, got involved with a couple of NGOs and try to help where I could utilize my skills. And what were you doing underground? So uh, one um, uh, one tasking I got involved in was going to an um, to Langtang region. It was more an area called uh, Helenbu. And the issue with Nepal is that a lot of the aid teams from around the world came over to try to help. But it's uh, quite a interesting terrain, you could say, because it, it's a hilly, mountainous terrain. So a lot of teams weren't used to that because teams would go over to um, to help a country and they'll set up a maybe static field camp and they expect people to, to come to them, they can help them, or they have limited mobility to get to different areas. But it was quite challenging terrain. I think a lot of teams could cope with that to really small, isolated areas where these villages are here and there. So I managed to link up with an NGO which had um, good resources um, and human resources. I had quite a few experienced people, operators who were actually ex-military people as well. And we were getting out to some of the hilly mountainous areas. And it was also coordinated with some other exhibition leaders who then put their skills to good use to help out with what was going on and they were really useful because again they had the, the skills and the ability to get to remote areas they had an understanding of logistics to set things up so we coordinated with them and and took over supplies such as food and basic supplies to areas which didn't have any because they were cut off and because there was also little communication in these areas we were able then to assess is there a further need so I was able to do some limited medical aid with people over there and also assess um, is there a greater need? And then one could actually feed back to the Nepali uh, Interior Health Ministry and the World Health Organization who were who were there as well to try to coordinate efforts. Wow, that must have been an intense It was, it was, yeah, uh, it was. And, um, you know, Nepal's still still recovering and it relies heavily on, um, on, on tourism for the economy. So I'm also trying to encourage uh, people to go there and I'm, leading trips there and, and trying to encourage more and more people so I actually only came back last month for leading a, a trip to um to nepal in another area in that region called langtang area where one of the villages there uh, called langtang village actually got um, unfortunately obliterated in the earthquake so part of a mountain and glacier above it fell off during the earthquake and came down and destroyed the village so every person there pretty much except one building which was hidden more in a cave left standing every person there all the local people the tourists there got got killed in pretty much um straight away uh, i think 313 people i think got got sort of wiped out just from that so that village has been rebuilt so um i was um uh privileged leader a trek uh, over there which um was uh, kindly supported by um, uh, Melinda Messenger, who is a, a TV personality, raising funds to try to rebuild a school, which is in a different area called Newercott. And the, the school is for hearing impaired children. And since 2015, their living quarters has been structurally unsafe, so they haven't been able to live there. And what we need to do is demolish it and rebuild it. So that's what we were fundraising for as well as raising awareness of the Langtang region, which was affected in the earthquake, plus also the Nepal tourism in general, which they need for their economy, raising awareness of that and trying to bring people back to that region. And the trip went very well, so much so that we're actually um, scheduled another trip 
and thanks as well to the kind support of Linda Messenger, who's who's also going to support that trip again uh, next May. So any support is much appreciated, both for the Nepali people and also for the school. We're trying to rebuild through our our charity, the Venture Beauty Foundation. That's that's amazing. Um, yeah, like even the ability to pair up your skills, your passion, giving back to community, the people that you're leaning on as ex- expeditions, even themselves living up. Like, there's so many combinations there, which kind of just shows that every single day you're doing, you're making impact, which is, I think that's awesome to do. Um, do you remember, say, the first scary experience that you had? Because if I think about, if I was in your shoes, for example, and I'm going into an earthquake zone, um, I'm going to these areas where there still could be aftershocks or anything like that. I don't know where I'm going into, and especially some of the other countries and places you've been to might have been quite dangerous just generally. Um, so I guess it's a twofold question. The first one, your first time you were scared. And the second one, how did you build up that level of fearlessness? So just thinking top of my head, I'm sure I've been scared so many times uh, <laughs> uh, from since I was a child right up to now. Um, but I just got um, top of my head, I'm thinking about on an expeditionary sense, um, Kilimanjaro, one of my early trips, so I was going with... Um, one of my friends who's uh, um, who's uh, guiding it, and I was on. Um, I think we we did as well as a normal trek. We did little side challenges on route, and one was a bit of uh, climbing on some rock, uh, which normally you wouldn't do just trekking up Kilimanjaro. So we're climbing on the rock, and I think I I I was finding a little bit challenging, or and also the exposure, and I might have frozen there slightly. And my my friend who's again. He was one of the climbers much older than me, quite experienced and a really good guide. He he was um, just telling me to focus, you know, calm my breathing down, um, count to 10 nice and slowly, simple measures, either in my head uh, or out loud. And I remember that really helped. And then it gave me some clarity and gave me some focus and some vision where I was able to come over to the, over an obstacle. And that's what I think is really important in, 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 overcoming some of these challenges and also in life in general is having that that focus and if you don't have that it can be hard for people to see that solution or even a way out of something it could be any challenge they have or any problem but they they find uh, more of a clouded vision if they if they don't have that focus if they don't control the fear because i think fear can sometimes be paralyzing for people and that's not good then they lose that focus so i think you can have concern but somehow trying to not become so fearful and lots of ways people may may do that i know one of the mantras in a way which i learned with some of my climbing friends who they they used to say this and i think it when i researched that i think it came originally from the dalai lama but put in a more eloquent way than what we said and it was it was you know we say if you've got a problem and you could do something about it why worry if you've got a problem and you can't do anything about it why worry? So in other words, what's the point of, of stressing? Um, I Stress, when it's too much again, I think that can become quite fearful and quite paralyzing. So that's what I try to instill in people as well, to try to help them over their obstacles, whether it's in the expeditionary environment or generally in life. And once they they relax a little more, then um, they find the solution. So to clarify, when you say focus, is it 
focus on the thing that they're trying to overcome or is it more so focus on creating a stillness within them? I think they can go hand in hand. I think first, if you create that stillness within you, you've got that foundation and platform which gives you that clarity and then you'll have um, a focus on how you overcome that obstacle or, or challenge. So I think people need to to have that calmness first in a way, if that's the, the right word to use. And there's another organization I'm part of my company, the Venture Boutique is part of called the, the Transformational Travel Council. And that's quite interesting because their belief, their ideology is similar to mine in that people like to travel, understandably, it's a fantastic thing to do. But if you can add in a, a transformational element to that travel, it can be one of the most powerful things ever. Because the idea of that then, people can involve themselves, they can transform in a positive way. And if they do that then, it just doesn't stop there. They don't just become maybe a more resilient human being. They don't just become happy in life. They then hopefully will go on to help other people. So that's the power behind it. So that's the, something from a, a transformational point of view, we certainly try to instill into our trips, into our expeditions in that Hopefully people will grow as an individual. They learn about their strengths and more importantly about their weaknesses and they develop as a person, a human being. And then they can also then, once they have that platform, go on to help other people. Can you share any examples of some of your clients that went through transformation? I could think of just uh, recently, um, our charity, the Venture Boutique Foundation, is supporting a hospital called Masanga Hospital. So Masanga Hospital is in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And um, I led an expedition there to climb the highest mountain in Sierra Leone, which are called Mount Bintamani. Practically nobody's heard of this or even ever climbed it. And it's, it is quite a wild adventure. And these, these um, clients, these friends wanted a, a real adventure. And to me, climbing the mountain is actually straightforward. You don't need really any technical skills. Once you find the mountain, it's an easy sort of easy scramble to get up and then down. But it's that whole journey and it's that whole process which I think uh, is enjoyable but also induces a, the transformation. And uh, whatever happened on that, that journey, you know, meeting the local people, the challenge and what people had to undergo themselves, um, we raised a lot of money for that hospital and that wasn't the, the initial intent. I mean, in a way, I did stop off en route because to get to... The mountains, the Lomas Mountains, where Mount Bintamani is situated, it's actually right on um, the east side of Sierra Leone, and you fly into the west in Freetown. So en route, it's good to stop off somewhere, and I stop off at Masanga Hospital. And that also means that the group can see the good work, what the hospital does, and what is actually going on there. And that's really powerful then, and it makes it real to people about what the locals uh, may want and, and what we could do as well. And then we carry on with the journey. It was only afterwards when they start reflecting about the journey. And that's what happened. I got contacted by by uh, people in the group and said, you know, Raj, I really want to support that hospital. What can I do? And then I, I have the links with the hospital and I say, what's needed to, to help you, to help the patients, to help their staff? And um, oxygen was a requirement. So they had a lack of oxygen they needed oxygen concentrators and from the group from some of my, my friends from the who, who 
they um, donated a lot of money, you know, personally um, gave that um, because I think it gave them appreciation of what they have, appreciation of life. And just from that, uh, which was thousands, good uh, few thousands of pounds, uh, we managed to buy, um, I think it was 36 oxygen concentrations, which I think has fulfilled that initial requirement for the whole hospital, which is really good. Um, so, so to me, that was an example of transformation. Um, however, it happened in the individuals, but that journey, that challenge, and um, the interaction with other cultures, other people, I think are an important part of that process. Mm -hmm. So do you make that as part of your ethos when you need an expedition, some type of like transformation or like in terms of building blocks of what each expedition has to do? Well, challenge is part of ethos because adventure is part of ethos. And I think with the adventure, you, you get that challenge. But I think then um, that then goes on to further development because then that, that can lead on to that transformation. You know, that challenge uh, can lead to the individual then becoming more resilient as a human being. And, and, and another, you know, another example I'm just thinking of now is someone I took on another expedition. And I remember they fed back uh, sometime later after the expedition to, to thank me for that journey they underwent because prior to that, they, they were a manager and they used to go into the management meetings and come out quite frustrated and stressed with the bickering and the politics going on. And then after that, they had a, a change in perspective and they came out, they said, more chilled and it didn't really bother them. And the, all the, the bickering and all the points, I think people were, were getting in a flap about, I think she saw the bigger picture actually. What, why are you getting so worked up about this and that? There's probably actually tiny points in the grand scheme of things. So it was really interesting, really nice to see that perspective shift, which, um, gave a positive transformation. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, that perspective shift that you mentioned, because you really do get an appreciation of the things that you have, the things that you don't have. I remember my first like long trip, which wasn't to my home, which is Nigeria. It was to Mozambique. So started off in South Africa. I went to Mozambique and we were working in an orphanage over Christmas. And yeah, it was an experience because not only am I like literally sleeping in crazy conditions, like shitting in the floor, all that kind of things where I had to get myself used to that. But then working with the children. And I think on Christmas day, when we gave them food, which was literally just beans, rice and a toy, which is nothing, but the look on their faces, like they were so happy and you could feel the energy to joy. And it just, like even to this day, it's probably my most, like my favorite Christmas. And it's the only Christmas where I haven't been around family. Um, and yes, yeah, like that, that kind of always has stayed with me. Um, because when you're here in the UK, there's only so much you can do. Like if you donate to charities, this, that, and the other. And sometimes when you go on like trips abroad and they take you to the souvenir place, all these other random villages where they're just trying to take your money away from you. But if you can find the opportunity to actually work directly with people in need, I think it changes the game completely. Oh, well, well done. What you, yeah. you went and experienced and helped out. That's really good. Yeah. I need to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And hey, you'd be more than welcome to join one of our expeditions if you want to. Yeah. Cause it, cause when it comes to expeditions, um, do you have like a particular criteria of people you would take on versus people you wouldn't take on? Yes, and it depends on the expedition. So 
uh, I'll review their background and I'm happy to tell them that actually this may not be for you just yet. You might need more experience doing this first and I'll give them a, a realistic evaluation and opinion rather than just trying to get bums on seats. That's not me. And I... What does evaluation look like? Is it skill level, background level, kind of, kind of evaluation? Yeah, you, you need to understand, yeah, the individual, individual from their, their psychology, their physicality, what they've done in the past. Uh, that's all really important. You need a, a holistic approach, really. When some some expeditions, like I have one um, later this year in Uganda, which will be a, a climbing expedition. We're trying to climb the three highest mountains in Uganda, which is Mount Stanley, Spake, and Baker. All the team there will all have experience climbing. So other people joining that, um, it won't really work for them. It could be dangerous for them unless they got certain skills and experience but after that i'm hoping we have another expedition to trap the wild mountain gorillas which to me is one of the greatest wildlife experiences in the world i think it's it's bonkers in a way that we've got what eight billion or so people in the world at the moment and there's only i think just over a thousand wild mountain gorillas left in the whole world which which gives us a wake-up call about how fragile the environment is and nature and how we need to start looking after this as well as one another. So that something like that would be um, less technical. People just need uh, general fitness to do a bit of hiking, but that's going to be adventurous, but in a different way, a non-technical way. So there's normally something for everybody. I mean, I just got back from Portugal and I actually had a, a group there uh, for a few days and that was again had some adventure but a lot more more chilled you know with um, some easy hiking because I knew the group's ability so I, I was able to tailor that adventure to their ability so I think there's something for everyone but in everything we do we always have some adventure element um, and but that will be tailored to to the individual or the group. Because talk to me about like the actual say what's it like for the person when they come onto base camp for day one like, I imagine they're high on energy. Some of them, some of them might be quite scared. And then even for you, you've got a lot of responsibility, a lot of hats that you're wearing. Like you have to look after them. You also have to encourage them. So like, talk me through a bit like what day one is like. I suppose when I first meet them in person, my mind's already working. I'm trying to get in the head in a, in a nice sort of way and trying to find out what they're about what makes them tick, motivates them. And although people see expeditions, the ones we do as a physical challenge, a lot of it's psychological. And I use a lot of psychology to try to help with my with my group to unlock their potential. Cause I think the real power is more, you know, in in the mind and in the heart. And once they unlock that, it's incredible what they achieve. And and so there may not be any set pattern. Everyone's an individual. And what I'll do, I'll give general uh, group briefings, which can be more factual about timings, logistics, can be a little bit motivational or inspirational just for the group. But then each individual, I'll need to tailor the communication. So then when I might do, if it's during a meal time or even while we're trekking along the journey, I'll be chatting with them. And then I'm thinking, how can I also get their best out of them? And then I might say something to one person which i think will be better said to that person than somebody else 
So the the psychological aspects really important, and then yeah. people um you know people are grateful when they achieve things, and but then I I think well they're the ones doing it on their, on their own two feet. So I'm the one pointing, hopefully helping them anyway, pointing them in the in the right direction. I mean, I'm going to ask you for your special source. Like, what are the psychological tips that or tricks that you use? It can be um, uh, that sort of je ne sais quoi or X factor. Like, there's again no set structure. I don't sort of plan it. I just, in a way, go with the flow. I, I see what's going on, and then I I act and adapt accordingly. I think a lot of it can be give people that self belief and reassurance is important. I do see some people who don't have that self belief, and um, in a way they defeat themselves early on and also that reassurance and to and i i mentioned just now going with the flow but that's actually the attitude i try to instill in in my uh, group uh, for example if we're going on a altitude expedition the likelihood is just about every single one of us including myself will get some form of altitude sickness and it's nothing to really to worry about if it's not um if it's not severe, mild form is expected. And some people get themselves in, in a state and they they say to themselves they're not going to get sick whatsoever. So when they do get sick, and that could be after day one sometimes, they mentally break down because they feel they're already defeating themselves. Whereas I, I try to tell people that real strength is not getting sick or not. It's actually real strength is when you have a problem like you feel sick, is what you do about it, how you go about your business, how you cope with it and deal with it. That's that's a real strength. So I try to calm them down um, mentally, psychologically, and get them to relax more. Just go with the flow and take each day as it comes. Enjoy the journey. Don't get so focused on the end goal. It's good to to have that in mind. But I think you can have all these other avenues and side, side roads, which can be even throughout life, which is worth exploring and enjoying every moment, every day being in the present, being in that moment and enjoying that rather than always thinking about the future or always thinking about past. I think those are important, the future and having some general objectives as well as uh, the past and learning from history or lessons learned or or valuing traditions and beliefs. But it's also important being in that present and enjoying that journey because after all, I think life's just a great journey. Yeah, I totally agree. You have to enjoy the journey. But even um, what you said resonated with me because you can be going all the way up to the top of the mountain, but sometimes the best views are on the journey. Like sometimes just the best, and you just if you're not paying attention to what's around you, then it's easy to forget that. Because um, we can compete against ourselves. Where, like for example, someone done a marathon, and they were caught up with, I need to finish at four. I need to finish at four. But then as they were doing it, they started telling themselves, actually, I'm running a marathon. I just need to finish, you know. Next year, we can start talking about um, better times if needed. But either way, you're doing something which hardly anyone has done before. Um, climbing Kilimanjaro, all of these places. Uh, how many people have actually got to that level? You know, so, yeah, just doing it and just the journey in itself is an achievement. Like, yeah. Has there been times where, even for you, you've had to push out of your comfort zone? Definitely. I think when I've done my climbing expeditions uh, with my friends or with others, then um, that could be going on a bit more extreme than maybe what I'd normally lead my groups on. And that I enjoyed because it tests me. 
might not enjoy it at the time because you're actually climbing big mountains is actually actually um, suffering and pain. But afterwards, uh, the the contentment it can give yeah. it's it's incredible. It stays with you lifelong. But you learn a lot. It's about yourself, about other people. So I think that that journey is quite special. So I think everyone should be challenged in some way. They can grow as a as an individual, and it doesn't have to be climbing Mount Everest itself. Everyone to me can have their own Everest, whatever it is. But I think challenge yourself whenever you can, and that way also stops you becoming stale. How often do you go on your own personal like challenges or mountaineering? I think for me now, I've I've content and done the more hardcore extreme things in the past, and so I'm actually quite content with what I've done. Challenge for me is now inspiring other people to achieve their aims, their, their ambitions, and also the challenge when you lead people. There are so many things um, which goes into an exhibition, so that can be challenging in itself, you know, all the logistics involvement and dealing with the group, trying to get the best out of them, um, interacting with the, the local crews and so many different elements. And sometimes as well, you get opportunity to lead yeah, quite um, interesting expeditions, so that, that can add a, a different slant. So there's lots of different elements which will challenge and test me when I, when I do these. Yeah, I can imagine the planning especially must be quite exhausting. So after some research has been done, I need to actually go out on the ground and test it. So I might design a provisional itinerary, uh, but then I'll always have to go out and recce the, the routes, check all the logistics, do the risk assessments, uh, look at the um, medical evacuation plans. And so everything I need to be reassured that is in place before I, I run it live. And and then you're always testing, adjusting, trying to improve things. So again, if I did that recce and I thought it's too dangerous, I won't run it. But I did it and thought, yeah, this works well, but I think this could be improved, that can be improved. So it's, it's a bit of a a test and adjustment phase as well, and then you have it right. Have you had to make any difficult decisions, either on the fly or just before? I mean, I've done recce's in some places where I thought I actually can't find an angle which would be really powerful for for people to do. So I thought at the moment, no. Uh, but then I'll go and revisit it. And so I've I've been somewhere and I've actually gone not so long ago again to have a look at it and thinking, yeah, I could possibly do something now. I think again, people shouldn't get set in their ways. You know, things change, and you need to adapt with what's going around you. And other opportunities might become apparent. So, I've um, I've done that, and there's other things where I've I've gone on and um, um, thought, yeah, this needs changing, that needs changing. Um, I mean, Sierra Leone again is one example. You know, I did a route on that, which um, was you could say pretty tasty pretty interesting and uh and i purposely did it as well during uh the monsoon time which um i think some people thought was a bit crazy but then i knew if i could risk assess it during the worst possible periods it means when i run it for clients when i run it for other people and then my charge the risk assessments done at the worst possible time it should be easier and even then i and i'm glad i did because even then when i did it in the good time there were challenges such as um i'll ask one I think one of the bridges was washed away by uh, by a flood. So I lost two days in the itinerary. We had to uh, ditch the Land Rovers early on and cross over by foot. So I had to think quickly 
um, in a way doing a dynamic risk assessment all the time about what's safe, um, when to go, when not to go, and then had to think on my feet and change the itinerary to make sure that it's safe for the clients and it works, they can achieve their ambition and that they actually enjoy it. And and again, that's a, a nice challenge for me and, and thankfully everything works out well. Mm, it sounds like you're on like completely throughout the whole time period, right? Yes. Because um, even with the Land Rover, so what, you just leave them and then on the way back, they'll still be there waiting for you. Yeah, we had to go through three tribal lands and that's what's the, the beauty of something like the Sierra Leone and Avenger we do because I say to group, we, we might not even get to the mountain. Reason being, we go to three tribal lands and we have to deal with three tribal chiefs. And I don't want to impose myself on local people, so I want to go with their blessing. So we, we chat with them, discuss, negotiate, and we have to get their blessing and permission to pass through their lands. If they say no, that's it. Um, and that's part of the excitement and adventure as well for, for the groups. So we did that, and I think it was the second village I may be saying we might be the second one. We were able to leave our Land Rovers there safely and then carry on on foot. And then when we got back, pick them up. What's the negotiation about them? Is it to do with like giving money or offering? Like how does that work? Money can play a part um, and and also employing the local people. It's good. So we, we, we utilize the local people um, in, an, in a sense of employing them, which will help them. Yeah. And so they're, you know, we're not giving them handouts. We're, we're giving them a, a role, so that's the power of, of the tourism. And and also just being culturally aware because different societies have different mindsets and work in different ways. So for instance, I remember I think it was the first village and the first chief we came to um, because there's a lot of respect for the elders. So even though I was the expedition leader, I think I was actually the youngest in the group at the time. So I, Jimmy, stayed away um, and milled around and I don't know whether he realized but I think I put one of my clients who had grey hair and was the oldest sat him strategically next to the chief because a sign of respect and the chief probably thought he's the one who's in charge and and whatever happened that seemed to work anyway and yeah. we got the blessing and they had a good chat um, I think my um, remember my being blissfully unaware but it was, he had a really nice time and for him it was quite special. Yeah. I think being next to the chief and interacting, something very different, which you'll probably, you know, people normally never get to do. So, do you ever interact, do you interact with some other tribes that have no human interaction normally? Yes, uh, we do. And again, with their blessing. So I was uh, privileged to have led an interesting expedition for the BBC and it was um, with uh, David Beckham and some of his friends where we we went through the Amazon jungle in Brazil and our aim was actually to head up north towards the Venezuelan border but get over to a tribe called the Yanomami who are absolutely incredible but that tribe there's no roads going there and you can't can't have contact with them um, normally speaking but we had a blessing from the chief of the Yanomami or someone considered their chief and as well as then special permissions from the Brazilian government. So we we had that interaction with them, but we had to be careful because we had to be culturally aware, brief the group how to interact, had to get screened for diseases. So we, we, we mitigate as many risks as we can not to affect them adversely. And then like I mentioned again, it wasn't like we just rocked up. We you know we, we made sure we, we were welcome first. And and that was special because you see their way of life and uh you think sometimes as well, 
well, what I like to do with my groups is when they go over on an expedition to another country is I try to get them in a way to see what's good in that society, in that culture and with those people and cherry pick what's good. And again, as I alluded to before, every country will have its strong points and not so strong points. Cherry pick what's good there yeah. and maybe bring it back to your own community, your own culture, your own country and instigate it there. And that way you can start building your own utopia. I think sometimes we can have a, gain a narrow focus where we think, oh, we're best and we don't look outside where we can learn lots from others and people can learn from us. And, and that was special to me because I saw the way of life and you saw as well, materialistically, they had nothing compared to us, but you actually sometimes think, are they actually richer than us? Because they seem maybe richer in other ways in their community, in the support for another, in just sharing time, telling stories, having meals, just simple things in life, which I think are really important, that human connection. As, and, and also what was um, quite special is the only place I've been to in the world where they'd never heard of football. They didn't even know what football was. So they, they obviously didn't have a clue who, who David Beckham was um, and because they, they, they even know what football is. Wow. How did they, did they even do sports at all, I guess? It's not, right? It's just behind them. So that's the thing. A lot of cultures I come across, they, they in a way, they are amused by us doing sports and going to the gym or, or whatever because they think, why are you doing that? Because for them, their lifestyle can be so active because actually if you're hunting all day or foraging, doing all these wonderful functional movements in the natural sunlight, it's one of the best forms of exercises. So why do you need to do anything else? Yeah, it's all true. It's all true. Has there been any other surprises that you've learned from some of these indigenous communities? I think they have some amazing skills which we would have once had and we've lost or are losing because I think we're losing in some aspects of society, we're losing that natural connection with nature. And these skills are very valuable, not just in future, as of now, with what's happened with the, with the climate and how various areas around the world need to be more adaptable and more resilient with what's going on. I'll uh, give you some examples. So I've been fortunate to spend um, some time with the, the Maasai, a little time with the Maasai. And, you know, it's incredible where they can find water just in what looks to me like dry earth, their water divination. That's one of many skills I have. Um, the, the, the San, the San people from um, Namibia, who they are probably the greatest trackers I've ever come across. How they could track animals or people for, for days and some of these I think are useful now will become ever so useful in the future I think there was a report done studied by some organization actually said that the Maasai should be used now with their skills and knowledge with what's going on now in some areas around the world with what's happened with the climate such as drought areas or here and there they've got skills and they can impart their knowledge to others to make other people more resilient and more uh, capable of of living it's like we forget there's that element of those those tribes that there's something they ignore something that we don't um because people come to rely on technology it's yeah. a good thing but also you know pros and cons because you spend so much time in these different countries different indigenous communities um do you still have a sense of where home is 
I do. The UK is my home. Yeah. I love the UK. And home, family, friends are really important. So, I mean, people have asked me why haven't I lived in other countries? And I know some countries which I think are amazing to live in. Yeah. But I suppose I'm, I'm privileged in that I have spent a lot of time abroad, immersed myself in these countries, in these cultures, with what I do through my, my passion and my work, that I have no need at the moment of actually living somewhere else. So, so UK, again, like I mentioned before, is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. So, so this is home. But um, I am, um, yeah, I'm very fortunate in what I do. Yeah, yeah, because that's what I'm going to say. Like, you, every time when I go abroad, it gives it gives me reasons why sometimes I dislike the UK. Going to other places, you see, okay, the UK is not that bad. Um, I think for here, it's just the weather is pretty <laughs> Like, give me some consistency, please. <laughs> Today's a good day, though. I'll give it that. Um, okay, cool. And then where's the farthest place you've been? The furthest? Um, I suppose the most remote place has been Antarctica, where I was on a climbing expedition to climb Mount Vincent, which is the highest mountain in Antarctica, right in the interior. And it's so remote, it's somewhere where you really need to be on the ball. That attention to detail becomes critically important because everything, like your kit and equipment, if you forget something, you can't just pop down to the shops to get it or something breaks. You've got to improvise and try to solve that issue or fix fix the, the problem or fix the equipment which is broken. So you've got to be quite resourceful. And I remember standing in the mountains just looking at a sea of ice, looks like going on for thousands of miles and not a soul in sight. And so you know that although we had communications for potential rescue, if something did happen, it may not always happen because it is so remote and a challenging environment to operate in. So that's probably been some of the mo one of the most remotest, but also one of the most beautiful places I ever seen. It's got this real surreal, ethereal light beauty, and it's very difficult to describe unless you're actually standing there. And um, things went very well. We we're very fortunate that our team we summited the highest mountain in Antarctica, uh, Mount Vincent. We also then went on to summit the third highest mountain, Antarctica, called Mount Shin, and we did a, a new route up Ranscombe Peak. And again, we were. We were honoured um, because our, we, we were written up in the American Alpine Club Journal for, for doing that new route on Branscombe Peak. But uh, yeah, that was a, an amazing expedition for sure. Well, what haven't you done yet? Sure, lots of things. But uh, I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm content anyway with what I've done so far. Yeah, yeah. So um, what's next for you then and the Venture BT happening next? So uh, next for me, I'm, I'm off... Uh, going to be up in Scotland for a bit and then doing actually uh, Ben Nevis, the highest mountain in the United Kingdom. Uh, fortunate to have been asked uh, to do that by um, uh, Gareth Thomas, the ex-Welsh rugby player, and Melinda Messenger, who they're doing it to support uh, tackle HIV, which Gareth is supporting. Uh, so doing that and then moving on to filming... Um, couple of tv shows um there's um a show called sas who dares wins mm -hmm. so being asked to be the on-screen doctor for that show so i'll um be doing that for the uk series but also i've been asked to do it for the american series as well so we'll be filming those and then i will be 
going on to uh, Uganda for a climbing expedition with a team. And then maybe after that, leading a trip for the Wild Mountain Gorillas. This year, yeah. A couple of other things in between, but those are sort of more in the expeditionary uh, environments. Um, and then we'll see. We've already some things planned. I mentioned earlier um, the other trip to Nepal um, in the Langtang area, which we're trying to support with a school and also tourism to the Langtang region. That's going ahead in, in May next year. As well, might have another group for Sierra Leone early next year. Yeah, things are interesting. Things are coming up. So before we wrap up, I've got three questions for you. So the first one, if someone wants to dip their toe into the world of adventure, what challenge would you recommend they undertake? It'll depend really what they want to do and what they want to get out of that challenge. Based on your, let's just say they just anonymous letter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A lot of people will come to us and they may not have much of a background experience so I think if they want to be challenged and it's a well-known example think of a well-known example Kilimanjaro is um is one Everest base camp uh, reasons being Kilimanjaro is the highest mountain on the African continent so people will be challenged but you don't need any technical skills you know you don't need any climbing skills it's a trek but you need a good attitude but the environment's stunning because it changes every day. You go through all the different climatic zones. You go through the farmland. Then you go through tropical rainforest. You go through heath and moorland. Then the next zone is low alpine desert. And then you get over to the ice cap. So people don't realize, they think it's a mountain, it's just rock. But actually the terrain changes every day. So no two days are the same. So that's really beautiful as well as uh, the Tanzanian people. And they're stunning and doing something like that sooner rather than later because the ice cap is actually melting. Kilimanjaro will probably no longer be there in, in a short space of time. And every space camp to me can be really simply the one of the, if not the greatest trek in the world. I mentioned earlier on about everything about Nepal and the people and the culture as well as the awe-inspiring views. So those are, are two examples which I'm sure people would have heard of if I'm thinking of a, a well-known name or something people can do with some general fitness and a positive attitude. There are lots of others which people may not have heard of so much, but those are just two from the top of my head. Um, a contrarian point of view related to the travel and tourism industry. So something, a negative impact which might be... Well, finger- something that everyone thinks is true, but you know to be false. Or everyone thinks it's false, but you know to be true. Okay. I may have to think about that. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, I suppose I hear people say, yeah, there's nowhere really left to discover sometimes. And some places, in fact, now it's happening. Places just get mass tourism because everyone's heard of that place, so they go there. But I'm, I try to get people to open up their eyes, to see what's around. And to me, there are lots of places undiscovered, even if the world's been mapped by satellite imagery, there's places where people don't, don't really go. And I try to get people out of a stereotypical image because sometimes people as well have this image, what they see maybe on the media, and they think that that's what the country's about. 
and that might be a small angle or sometime in the past. Like again, going back to Sierra Leone, a classical example is I, when I chat to people about it, the two images they have in the mind is a civil war and blood diamonds. Some people even think I've come across who still think there's a civil war going on. And that ended, I think around 2002 may not be the exact year, but it was around that time. So you're talking about over 20 years ago. And, and so, and the reason they have that image is really what they've seen on the, the media. And although that can be important in informing people, but still can give a very narrow view of what that country and especially the people are all about. So that's what I try to break that mold. I like that. So would you say, this isn't my last question, but what would you say is an underrated country in Europe? Ukraine. I'm saying that because not what's going on at the moment uh, with um, conflict. I would have said that well before because I actually been needing expeditions in Ukraine for years before things have started and I'm hoping to lead them again in the future. So that was another of the stereotypical views and brought groups over and they said they can't believe this is Ukraine because they had this image of um, old Soviet area, era buildings and atmosphere and some of the places you went to, they were likening it to a, uh, like a Paris prison cafe culture and the architecture and the beauty of the place and the warmth of the people. And, you know, people have said, you know, they really didn't have a clue. And that's why they came. They, they, they wanted that adventure. They wanted to take that risk, that leap of faith and see the place from themselves and undertake a challenge with us. And other people I speak to haven't been there. Yeah, still, I suppose they know more about it now because it's been in the media, but prior to that, they didn't really know where, where it was, what it was about. So that again is top of my head. If you're thinking about one in Europe, which to me has been underrated and I've been operating there since I think 2008 or something like that. So so about 15 odd years I've been going there leading groups. Wow. Yeah. When things calm down, I'll be there as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay, last question. If there was one message that you'd leave the world with, what would it be? Challenge yourself. Look after one another. And be happy. Awesome. Thank you, Raj. So where can people find you and your adventure boutique? What's your socials, handles, emails? Yeah, so website is theadventureboutique.org, so .org, and uh, they can contact us on, on the website. There's a contact page with an email or a submission form, but contact at theadventureboutique.org. The handle's an interesting one because one of my team members does the Instagram and I'm pretty useless probably with social media, so I actually don't even know our own <laughs> handle, but I'm sure if you go on the website, you can probably find it on there to click onto Instagram. Thank you, Roger. It's been amazing. Thanks very much, Yoni, for having me.